welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I am your host, Todd Conklin. I'm going to take you on a little ride today. Yes, today's a big ride, but I wanted to start with a celebration of summer because I'm into it. I'm so I'm both feet. I'm in. You can't be, well, you could, maybe some of you are more into it than I am, but I'm pretty stinking into it, that's for sure. It is summer. It's the best time ever, if you ask me. A lot of outdoor TV watching going on, a lot of hanging out, lots of going over to friends, you know, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a great thing. Everything's kind of worthwhile and fun to do. So that's why I popped in at just a tasty little morsel of seals and crofts. Some of you, I probably took you back. Okay, That's taking you back there. That's I'm jerking you back to the past musically, the, the oldies, the moldy oldies, as it were. But nonetheless, this is the podcast for today. I hope you're doing fine. Hope everything's grand. All is well with me. I would complain, but I don't know anything. Going through, I'm going through. I've got a big airline story to tell you, but I might save it for its own little podcast adventure because it's a, <clears throat> it's quite an elaborate story. There's quite a bit going on there in that story, so we can talk about that later. Today's podcast, however, is by special request. So sit back and relax. It doesn't really involve. Uh, per se, another person. It's just uh, some yammering for me because I get a lot of heat around the choice of the word capacity. And I, don't, I, I mean, I've told you this before. I'm not in love with the word capacity, but it's it's a pretty good word to talk about uh, sort of the ability, the margin you have between normal operations and failure. I don't know what else you'd call that space other than the margin between normal operations and failure. I mean, you could call it, you could call it altitude. If you were a pilot, you probably would call it altitude because altitude um, covers lots of sense, right? I mean, you can fix a lot of problems as long as you have altitude. You could call it um, uh, cushion and the cushion might be good. David Woods calls it, or he called it, we were talking about one day and he called it graceful extensibility which uh, I love that. I wouldn't use that in front of human beings because they would look at you like you were crazy. And I mean, like, hey, you got a hand growing out of your forehead. You're crazy, that kind of crazy. But I actually think the notion of capacity is is um, is probably the right word. It's funny, though, because if you use it in context, like the way I use it is, is safety is not the absence of accidents. Safety is the presence of capacity. And another kind of less elegant way to say that, but maybe more accurate, is that you don't make a system more reliable by taking the negative things out. You actually make a system more reliable by putting positive things in that system. And those positive things, that's the margin, that's the altitude, that's the cushion, that's the graceful extensibility, that is, in fact, the capacity. But it's a hard notion for people to grasp. And, in fact, I'll bet some of you that are listening right now are thinking, you know, what, what does that mean exactly? And how do I, what do I do with it? And more significantly is, and how do I measure capacity? How do I measure the room that we have between space and failure? And that's what we should talk about today because the answer to those questions are you're actually really good at managing that margin. You do it all the time in your life, all the time. You're probably doing it right now. The other thing is it's, it's not terribly hard to measure. Your mobile telephone has figured it out a long time ago. You can measure battery life by some percentage. You can measure how many bars you have of signal. Those are all capacity things. Those are those are things that you're not using until you use them, and then when you use them, you're using them, right? Uh, fuel in your car, a fuel gauge in your car is a, 
is really a capacity. This is how much fuel I have left. So if I need to drive X amount of miles and I have Y amount of fuel, I can do a quick calculation and I can say I have plenty of capacity or I don't have enough capacity or oftentimes in my life I say I'm going to try to make it. I'm going to try to I'm going to try to push this through. I'm going to try to hustle this up. And lots of industries look at it differently. Um and that's okay. I mean, in the in the DevOps side, they talk about chaos monkeys and we've talked about those before on the podcast where you go fail a system and then you measure how long it takes you to find out the failure happened and then recover from that failure. And all those things have to do with capacity. But I kind of got a story that sort of puts me in a place that I think I can talk about capacity that at least for me um, kind of changed the way I think about capacity. And it's a relatively good story to tell. It, it, I, I wish I'd have recorded it, but I didn't have anything with me to record it. But, but, but here's how it goes. So I get on a plane and I sit down, which is what I do a lot. So, you know. I squeeze myself into the seat and I'm making myself as comfortable as I possibly can. And my seatmate, the guy that's going to sit next to me comes in um, maybe five minutes later and he sits next to me and he's got a Whataburger bag. And so if you don't know what Whataburger is, it's, it's a really, really, really delicious hamburger. I mean, like life changing. Actually, I will tell you between us chickens, the Whataburger patty melt is really, truly life changing, but their hamburgers they're great. They're no booger. They're really great. Right. And, uh, he's got this little bag and inside is a hamburger and French fries. And he starts to eat it. And he turns to me and he says, I'm so sorry to eat this in front of you. I know the smell must be really, really killing you. And I said, if killing me is the smell of a delicious hamburger, kill me now because it's that amazing. And I laughed and said, you know, you're a brave man to sit next to me and eat a hamburger. And he offered me a French fry, which I might add I took because it felt like culturally at that moment, not taking it would be somewhat offensive. So that's why I took it. I mean, I felt like I had, I didn't want to take it. And I, I, I felt like I had to take it culturally or I would have actually uh, ruined our relationship and he could not save face in offering that French fry. So I had a French fry and he eats his burger pretty efficiently. I'm pretty impressed. He's a little guy, but I mean, he, he knows his way around a hamburger and pretty soon he's finished and he wads all the trash up and he folds it up carefully and he puts it in the bag and he hands it to the flight attendant and we still haven't taken off. And he turns to me and he says, uh, you going home, which is a pretty standard question. And that's kind of that borderline where you're thinking, oh man, do I want to start a conversation because this will take the entire trip? Do I have anything else I need to do or want to do? And, uh, and if the answer is no, I don't have anything else I need to do or want to do, then the conversation's great. Um, but if I'm busy, oftentimes I, I try to sort of think of exit strategies at this point in the conversation. But this guy looked pretty interesting. And like I said, he brought a hamburger on board. That was impressive. And he was dressed in black shoes, black socks, black pants, white shirt with epaulets. And he had a, a dingle tag around his neck on a, uh, on a, on a, uh, a lanyard on a badge lanyard and he was clearly a pilot. So he's deadheading on the plane and he's sitting next to me and he grabbed his, his meal. So I thought, well, then this will be all right. I'll talk to him. So I told him my name. We started talking a little bit and uh, he asked what I did for a living. And I don't know um, if you have the same problem I do, but it's relatively hard to explain. I mean, you can say I'm a safety guy, but uh, I said, you know, I work a lot with high reliability and human performance. I work a lot with systems that can't fail and, and high risk. 
And he looked kind of knowingly and nodded. And he said he was a pilot for FedEx. And then we took off and it got kind of quiet and that's fine too. And I'm sitting there and he turns to me and he said, uh, now he said, I've eaten my food's digested. Now I can kind of maybe listen. What, what on earth do you do? Just like that. And I told him more about what we do for a living. And he was really interested and asked me lots of questions about um, books and, and information and where we get this and what we do with it and what kind of industries. And, uh, and I told him, you know, a bunch of stuff. And I mentioned a couple of books and he said, well, you know, we looked at a book called pre-accident investigation. I said, well, you yeah, know, that's, um, I'm really familiar with that book. That's what I said. Cause I don't know. It didn't seem like, it, you know, that, that was a good thing to say. Right. And, uh, he said, uh, he said, I like the idea that you guys have around managing safety differently. And I said, yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting. I said, in the aviation world, you guys kind of figured this out early. And he talked to me about the Atlas air crash that happened. And that was a pretty interesting discussion. And then of course we talked about the Boeing. He flies Boeing, Boeing 767. That's what he flies. That's his job for FedEx. And uh, he said, um, he said, it's interesting to think about safety as, as not a failure but in fact is the ability to not fail or fail gracefully. Kind of the classic story we just had earlier, right? And I said, yeah, that's a, I said, it's really all about capacity. You create capacity and that capacity is what you manage and you can actually manage capacity because capacity is a known thing as opposed to managing uncertainty because uncertainty is uncertain. And remember, we'd already talked about the Atlas air crash that happened in Houston and we talked about the Boeing stuff. So we'd, we'd kind of had some pretty good discussion and he turned and he said, I have an example of what I think you're talking about. And I said, well, I'm always interested because I find capacity to be something I I tend to explain a lot. And so I'm always looking for a a good example. And he said, well, he said, I'm going to give you an example, but the example I'm going to give you happens four times a night in the four quadrants of North America, in the four quadrants of the United States. And I said, okay, so I got it. What is it? And he said, well, Every night, a plane leaves from Denver to fly to Memphis. In, in fact, he said, every night, two flight plans are filed. One is a two-hour flight plan from Denver to Memphis, and one is a four-hour flight plan from Denver to Memphis. And I said, okay. I'm wondering what's going to go on. And he continues to say, one of those planes that goes to Memphis will be full of packages, and one of those planes will be empty. So now I'm listening because... Now it's getting interesting. And he said, what happens is the planes both leave Denver. They're both heading to Memphis. The one that's filled with packages will be on the two-hour flight plan, and it is going to fly from Denver to Memphis as efficiently as it possibly can. The other plane, instead of leaving Denver and heading east towards Memphis, the other plane will leave Denver on the four-hour flight plan, and it will fly west towards California and then south towards Mexico and then east towards Memphis. And it'll take that plane four hours to get to Memphis. And I said, so what's going on there? Well, why is that happening? And he said, one plane is full of packages, and one plane is flying just in case we need it. If a flight breaks down, if there's a maintenance problem, if there's some kind of crew problem, or if we get more deliveries than we expected, we always have this additional capacity over each of the four quadrants of the United States. And I said, wow. So that's actually quite a commitment in reliability. 
because that's a full-size 767 empty. I I paused for dramatic effect. How'd it go? Did it go okay? I thought it went well. It's always ready to pick up packages, but in fact, it's quite possible that it could fly empty. So I say to the guy, do you fly these flights? And he goes, oh, yeah, of course. I fly the 67. I fly the 767. That's what I fly. I said, how many times do you go on the four-hour flight plan? How many times are you in the empty plane? And he said, I fly those pretty often. I mean, yeah, that's pretty often. There's a crew of us, and, uh, and we have a, a first officer and a pilot, and uh, then we have a couple people, you know, two or three people ride on the plane. And uh, he was talking about sort of how that works. And he said, and a lot of times I'll fly that four-hour four flight plan, I'll fly that empty plane. So then I asked him this question because I was really curious about this question, and now I have somebody I can ask that to. I said, how often do you actually have to stop and pick up packages? How often do you pick up for maintenance? How often do you pick up for crew complications? How often do you pick up for some kind of variability? How often do you pick up packages that are sort of beyond what you thought you'd carry that day? And this is where the conversation got really interesting. And and I mean, to me, it it got really interesting because he said, well, probably 75% of the time. That story is etched in my brain because that's not a story of operational discipline. That's not a story of following procedures. It's really not even a story of planned work. That's a story almost entirely of capacity. That is an incredible commitment to ensuring that operations continue no matter what happens. And it's an expensive, I mean, it's, it's, it's an expensive commitment until you need it. And then the investment in that capacity becomes incredibly obvious. And if 75% of the time they're doing stuff, I would actually suggest that what that does is provides that additional layer of capacity, that, that, that additional layer of reliability on top of their normal operations, and it happens in four quadrants. There's more than just the one. That, my friends, is the definition of capacity. And when you think about it, that really is a pretty good illustration of an organization's commitment in ensuring that what they want to have happen happens. Because the last thing the pilot said to me is if they didn't go down and swoop in and pick up those packages, then the revenue for that plane would be zero. And the revenue, in fact, in my mind, it would be negative zero. It would be zero revenue minus all the operational expense to make zero revenue. And so in my mind, that notion of carrying that capacity, you could spread that cost throughout the operations and actually use that, leverage it, and understand how that builds another dimension, altitude or graceful extensibility or whatever example you want to use, that's a really interesting way to think about capacity. Now, that story, I think, is helpful to us because you may not fly an empty 767 in your shop or on your plant floor or on your drill rig or wherever it is you work. I mean, that that would be a little crazy. But my guess is, is that this type of capacity story is one that you've probably had before because I'll bet you have this kind of capacity that exists, especially if operations are really significant and they must work. Or it's a story you can now have in the future about where you need to put this excess capacity to actually manage uncertainty. When you think about high reliability, 
and the principles of a highly reliable organization, right? You think about deference to expertise and a, a sort of a, a constant gnawing notion that something's going to fail. You think about how we, we were reluctant to simplify. You think about all the principles that exist in high reliability. But to me, the notion of high reliability could be really boiled down to the fact that you've built in the capacity, the altitude, the, the fudge factor, the margin, the ability to actually recover from uncertain outcomes. Because the one thing plans can't plan for are unplanned events. So if you can't plan for the unplanned event, I don't know what will happen. And in most of your operations, the work is so complex that it would be really hard to predict all the ways it could potentially fail. What I can plan for, however, is that additional capacity. Now, it may cost me 25% of the time because 25% of the time that plane will fly empty for four hours and land in Memphis. But the other parts of that time, that actually becomes very, very interesting because that 75% of the time, that plane's actually creating that additional extensibility, that, that capacity, so that they could be successful. That's what I want you to think about when you think about capacity. But let me say one other thing. I don't think you have to have the million-dollar solution. In fact, my guess is, is that FedEx didn't start by immediately the first day they operated flying empty planes in case something broke down. My guess is is they made incremental improvements towards reliability and were constantly learning and improving, constantly learning and improving, which is really part two of capacity. Don't think of capacity as the grand theory, the grand solution for your organization's problem. Think of it as a whole series of miniature sub-tweaks to a system to add more margin, to add more space, to add more altitude. And in fact, that's where we can steal from our buddies in the software development side of the house, especially on the DevOps. They don't make grand changes very often because grand changes are a significant interruption to operations and they're pretty high risk. What they do is constantly make a series of micro tweaks to the existing system to make that system more robust, more efficient for sure, but also more reliable, that system to have more capacity. And so when you think about your organization and how you want to create capacity within your organization, one of the challenges I want you to think about is that you are in a position to make a tremendous amount of small, almost daily micro changes to the work you do. And in that process of making these small, almost daily micro changes, that allows you over time collectively to create capacity. So you don't start with an empty plane the first day, but you may start with a plan to manage high risk loads coming out of Denver that looks different than an empty plane. Eventually, over time, after a whole series of small micro-challenges, that's when you can actually build up the total notion of capacity. But my guess is that never stops. That's constantly happening. And that is really what we talk about when we talk about safety and reliability and resilience. It's funny, you guys, because really the safety we talk about now has very little to do with the traditional things we spent our lives talking about, injury management and thinking about hazard identification, 
All those things are really important. The industrial safety side of the equation matters for sure. But when you start talking about resilient and reliable operations, what's funny is the things that we used to care about now become less important. Is that the right thing to say? I don't know. It feels bad saying that. They become less significant to the overall picture of reliability and more interesting to normal daily operations. The notion of managing capacity is initially kind of a hard sell. And the reason it's a hard sell to your organization is because people don't think of safety being managed that way. In fact, our belief is that we manage safety based around the bias of not doing it wrong, right? Whatever doing it wrong means. Doing it wrong means somebody gets hurt. That bias towards not doing it wrong actually pulls our thinking away from the challenges of creating more resilience. If, if FedEx said, we just will never have a plane break and we'll ensure with very tight tolerances, very significant and very rigid policies and procedures, cardinal rules, absolute rules that tell the mechanics never to allow a plane to go if it's broken, that would sort of push them away from thinking about the need to have an additional plane when the inevitable happens. And it's that shift in understanding uncertainty that really does change the way we manage our organizations. Where once we tried to prevent all uncertain things from happening, now we're smarter. Now we know that it's almost impossible to prevent uncertain things from happening. I don't even know how to tell you to do that. It would be really, really difficult to do because they're uncertain things. You don't know what could fail. And remember, your organization is so complex, it's hard to imagine all the ways that your organization will fail. But what we can manage is the margin between normal operations and catastrophe. And within that margin, that's where we place safeguards and barriers and plans and programs and people and resources and all the things that we put into a system to make that system more resilient. That's the way we have to think about safety. And it's the funniest thing because I was just sitting on a plane kind of bored, minding my own business, when the smell of a hamburger awakened my inner student and allowed me to build a case where I can learn. It was fun hearing him tell the story, and it was fun hearing him talk about capacity. But I think what was most interesting is that this didn't seem unusual or luxurious or expensive or even weird to him. In fact, what this was was the way they do business. And because it was hardwired into the way they do business, that's just the way they do business. They wouldn't operate without that capacity because 75% of the time they have to draw on that capacity in order to bring revenue across the table. That's a very, very important part of how we see the world. So that's my little story. It's not very long, but it's a very, very interesting story. I kind of wish you were with me because it would have been more fun to have you listen to him tell it because he did a really nice job. But I have to tell you, I'm glad I'm glad he put things together to tell me that story because I wouldn't know to ask that story. I had no idea that that was even a potential. But he was able to sort of translate the work you do, the work I do, the work we do every day, 
into a really practical operational example that actually FedEx counts on in order to be successful. Now, I didn't ask for permission to tell this story. I don't even know the guy's name. I mean, he might have told me, but I don't remember it, um, which is kind of bad on me. But I'm betting he doesn't remember my name either since I didn't really tell him. But I think I don't need permission to tell this story. In fact, I think this is a story FedEx should tell more often. But I bet it's scary for them because it's so normal, they don't think of it as special. And I think that's ultimately the test for capacity. That's our challenge, you guys. That's what we do for a living. And I'm so glad we get to hang out and spend time talking about it, just you and me. I mean, in a way, the world's changing. And in a huge way, you're a giant part of that change. And I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate you being on board. So that's the podcast, short and sweet, but nothing wrong with that. This will keep us sane for a while, too. So until then, fly an extra plane, okay? Have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. I'll bet you did today. I'll bet this was knowledgeable for you today. And most importantly, be safe. (laughs) 